0: Hey everyone, it's Raheel. It's been a week since the Shell chemical plant fire in Deer Park, and we're just starting to learn about the environmental and health impacts from the 70 plus hour blaze that filled the Deer Park skies with potentially toxic smoke. Joining me from Air Alliance Houston is Jennifer Hadaya to talk about how disasters like this are becoming more common due to relaxed regulations and the potentially long-term environmental impacts to our city from the fire. It's Monday, May 15th. I'm Raheel Ramzanali, and here's what Houston is talking about. Jennifer, happy Monday. Welcome to CityCast Houston. How are you?
1: I am good. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, I uh, was born and raised in Houston. I love talking about Houston, so thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And you are now part of the Air Alliance Houston. Tell me, what is that?
1: Absolutely. So Air Alliance Houston is a nonprofit advocacy organization that has been working since the late 1980s. I was in middle school at the time (laughs) (laughs) to address the public health impacts of air pollution. Back then, we were formed because we were concerned about smog. Uh, there had been a report at that time that Houston was, was the smoggiest city. Uh, fast forward many decades later and, uh, Spoiler alert, we are still working on smog. (laughs) We still have a smog uh, concern here in Houston. We are not the smoggiest city uh, in the nation anymore, but we are in soon to be severe non-attainment for ozone, which means we have a lot of work to do when it comes to uh, smoggy air. And that's where Airlines Houston comes in. And so we are here truly with the sole mission to ensure that the air we're breathing keeps us healthy and not puts us in harm.
0: Wow, that is awesome to hear that somebody is fighting for us here. And it must have been a couple of busy weeks here with the Shell fire that happened in Deer Park first. Help me just help me understand what exactly happened there.
1: That is a great question. (laughs) Uh, It will be some time before we know exactly what happened. But we do have some broad strokes. So on uh, Friday afternoon, May 5th, there was a fire that ignited at the Shell Chemical plant. Shell Chemical is a petrochemical manufacturing site. They take the raw materials that eventually become gasoline and combine those and use those to produce petrochemicals. And in this case, the the location on their plant that caught fire is called an olfin's unit, and it is used in the manufacturing of gasoline. And so that Olfins unit caught fire. What we don't know is the, the details of what led up to that, that unit uh, becoming inflamed. We just know that in some kind of regular operation of the facility, a fire caught at this Olfins unit and obviously burned for, I think the last count we saw was 70 hours. I remember seeing headlines saying the fire has been extinguished and then we'll see another headline. Oops, it's been reignited. Um, Or in the process of containing the impact, something reignited. Um, It just tells you how volatile the chemicals are that are being worked with that during, in theory, a routine process, uh, something could go wrong and uh, they could catch fire and burn for so long and be so difficult to extinguish over time. Um, But there's a lot that we don't we still don't know. Uh, We don't know exactly what was emitted into the air during the fires, plural, (laughs) since they kept reigniting. Um, We can do some investigation to find out what might have been emitted, and that's only through the air monitoring data that we can see, but the facility itself has time to produce that report. My understanding is they have two weeks to tell us what was emitted. That's obviously cold comfort for the community to now know several weeks after the fact what they might have been breathing during the acute event or in these subsequent weeks. Because um, there may very well be lingering emissions in addition to the emissions that are already emitted by the facility, which is the case, they're already emitting. This event, plus anything that may still be lingering from the event, we, we wait to know.
0: We'll jump into that in just a second, but we do want to make sure to let everyone know the fire is out now.
1: It is out now. Yes, that is correct.
0: Mm-hmm. But were you surprised that this happened at all at that particular plant?
1: That's a great question. On the And I feel conflicted in my answer. On the one hand, it is always shocking to see... Images of a very strong fire and a very dark smoke, and, and and it's always it's always your your heart skips a beat. You never want that to happen because every past disaster starts to go through your head. Every, every experience that Houstonians have had, they are reminded by this flame and this smoke, and we wonder if it's going to become worse. It was a fire. Was it going to become an explosion? It burned for 70 hours. Was it going to burn for 70 days? So, on the one hand, I want to say that I am still shocked by it because it's shocking images to see our community uh, living with this. But on the other hand, um, it happens a lot. I, I I hesitate to say it happens all the time, but. Uh, There was a study a few years ago that found that in the Houston area, on average, looking at a long period of time, but on average, there is a chemical fire or leak of this kind every six weeks in the Houston area. That is really all the time. And just this year in 2023, this isn't the first situation we've seen. This is the third in my recent memory in the beginning of May. Uh, There was this fire. There was a fire that erupted at the phenol INEOS plant in Pasadena during a transport from a truck to a storage tank. That was a fire. That was in March. Uh, about a month before that, there was a chemical leak out in Katy. So just in these last few months, we've seen three happen. So on the other hand, I'm not surprised. It's only, it feels like it is only a matter of time. Maybe six weeks from now, we're going to be having the same conversation again, if that's how often on average it happens.
0: So, is it just because this fire was so captivating because of the images that we're getting, the coverage, and we're learning about it? Because I had no idea that it's every six weeks it seems like something like this happening. <laughs> Katie's in my backyard. I had no mm-hmm. idea there was an issue there. Why aren't we hearing about these?
1: Well, some of some of them are different in magnitude and scale. Certainly, uh, this is a unique situation because it did last for a period of time. Some of those events are are have have less time to contain. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, This particular event, I think it was, it was larger. It was very visual. It had a much larger impact across the community. It wasn't as isolated, for example, as the Katie chemical leak was, that was very isolated. And I also think that there wasn't immediate and often real time communication about what was going on and what were its impacts. And that causes community concern. It causes a lot of questions to be asked. It causes uh, groups like mine to start raising up these important questions. And there is, generally speaking, a a lack of real-time information, which I think adds fuel to the fire, (laughs) pun (laughs) intended, of worry and concern. We don't know, and so we, we. We consider the worst case scenarios, given, again, the history of disasters that have happened in this community. So we have always advocated for early and often communication to the community, not making us wait two weeks to know what was emitted, not making us wait days to have information about the air monitoring, but telling us early and often. And what usually happens, and this this happened in this case again, is that we will be told there's no danger, there's no concern. But that statement is not made for the benefit of public health. It's not based on data. It's, it's made, in my opinion, for the benefit of the public relations that comes with a disaster of this size.
0: So the other layer of this plant fire is that it had 2000 environmental violations over the past decade. In, decade. In fact, 95 right now are still unresolved. Where does that play into what happened with that fire and how long it lasted?
1: That's a great question. Our state regulatory agency, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality or TCEQ, has been officially called a reluctant regulator. And I say officially because that that title came out of their own internal review happening right now with the Texas legislative session. It's called the sunset review and every 12 years every state agency goes through a review where their efficacy and their efficiency is evaluated. And in their own internal review, they were called reluctant regulators. I think that sums it up in some ways. They are mm-hmm. reluctant to investigate, hence, why there are so many open. Uh, complaints and potential violations. They're reluctant to fine facilities. Of those 2,000 that you mentioned, uh, one of our partner organizations did a great analysis and found out that of all of those compliance concerns, the facility was fined an average of $371 per violation.
0: It's like a ticket, just like a speeding ticket. Sure, sure. And so (laughs)
1: our, our regulatory agency as being reluctant. Uh, and that also means they're looking for ways in our opinion, to allow industry to operate as industry wants. And you would think that 2000 violations of that 2000, over 200 of them were emergency responses. Something else had gone wrong at that facility over 200 times before. And yet, um, minimal fines, open violations, as you mentioned, and here we are. Clearly nothing that TCEQ is doing to ensure compliance prevented Friday's fire from happening. It's not working. Something is not working here. So we know that this facility had indications of potential emergencies in the past and uh, TCEQ being reluctant in the the ways I've described, um, weren't assuring that those conditions had been improved if they were even investigating them at all.
0: Let's talk about the surrounding communities. Shell is saying that there's no threat as of right now. And you said they're still, they still have time to work on the report. I mean, I, I, you just look up and you're like, okay, there's obviously something burning right, in the there's air. there's smoke right? in the air.
1: Yes, yeah, yes, There's smoke
0: yes. in the air. Like, mm-hmm. how does that happen that there's no threat detected? How is that possible?
1: The technical answer to that question to the best that, that I even understand it, to be honest, is that The TCEQ, (laughs) again, (laughs) sets a standard for a variety of air pollutants. In this case, uh, a variety of carcinogens like benzene and butadiene that are emitted uh, by facilities like Shell Chemical. They set a standard. And then when an event like this happens, there is air monitoring, and the monitoring compares what they're reading in that moment to the standard. There are a lot of ways that that process doesn't quite work. (laughs) Number one, you have to have good standards. And what we have learned through incredible investigative journalism, that in a similar event, coincidentally, also in Deer Park, which was the ITC, Intercontinental Terminals Company fire that happened in 2019, very similar kind of facility, same city, that the standards TCEQ was using to monitor for were occupational standards. They were standards you would have used if you were in the plant, Mm. not standards that you would use in a community. So number one, if your standards are not accurate to the context in which you're monitoring the data, you're not going to see a level of concern. Uh, Second, um, your standards have to be for the right things. You have to be monitoring for the right things. And what we know from the air monitoring data They weren't looking at what was so obvious to us with the naked eye at what's in smoke. What's in smoke is particulate matter. Particulate matter is one of the most dangerous air pollutants out there. It can cause respiratory distress, it can cause heart attack. To say there was no danger to the community just ignores the very obvious danger that we could all see with the naked eye, which was that black smoke. They weren't monitoring for particulate matter during this event or after. Now, there are Mm. other groups like ours that do monitor for particulate matter, and we saw some significant spikes on our air monitoring on the day of the event in the communities that were upwind or downwind, however you want to do the direction, basically in the wind pattern, in the the front line of the smoke, uh, and we did see some spikes in particulate matter.
0: All right, so let's talk about the environmental impact, right? You're obviously monitoring the air, but what kind of impact is this fire going to have not only to the air, but the water as well? We had a lot of runoff water. We had those right. rainstorms right after. I mean, we're going to see contaminated liquids pouring into the Houston Houston ship channel. What's going to happen with that?
1: A couple of things about the uh, wastewater discharge. Number one, it was not authorized discharge. I think that is just another piece of evidence to this very relaxed regulatory environment that we had. Shell made a decision. It started to discharge its wastewater into the ship channel without permits or permissions to do so. Number two, there is a lot of chemicals that are in wastewater runoff, especially after a fire. So there are microplastics in the foam that's used to put out active fires that have now been washed into our waterways. Um, we already are under a number of water quality alerts for our ship channel area, just flowing. I don't even know to this day, I don't think it's been reported how many gallons of that wastewater was discharged into the ship channel and then ultimately into Galveston Bay. But mm-hmm. we know that that firefighting foam contains what we call forever chemicals. It contains those microplastics that are virtually impossible to eliminate from the environment. And so I think the out, the impact of this event is going to last for quite some time. We're not aware of any water samples that have been taken to ensure that that water contamination was, to the extent of the water contamination, and mm. if it was isolated to where they discharged, we don't have that information. So the impacts are, are pretty significant, that uh, air, water, and soil can be affected by all of this, because obviously water seeps into the soil. So there are, there are going to be a levels of impact as, as the weeks progress.
0: Do you think Houstonians should be worried in the short term right now when they head out to Galveston or they're on the bay for Mm -hmm. recreational activities or fishing activities? Anything to worry about that because of this fire?
1: Sure. I would say that uh, what I would advise Houstonians to be cognizant of is especially if they are in a vulnerable group. So people who have chronic conditions, people who are already respiratorily or cardiac uh, vulnerable, uh, people who are older. Our seniors, people who are young, people who are pregnant, so people who are in vulnerable groups anyway and already are also the most susceptible to any kind of environmental disaster. They are going to be the most susceptible to the air pollution, to the water pollution or the consumption of 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 products that come out of the water. So what we always say is no matter what TCQ or a, or a plant is telling you and saying there's no danger, if you start to feel ill, if you're an asthmatic and you start to have trouble breathing, if you have if you have chronic heart failure and you're having difficulty breathing and and palpitations, you need to go see your medical provider. That's what we will always say. No matter what that message is, if you are someone who is affected by this, then you need to seek medical attention.
0: You know, you mentioned that we have these kind of disasters every couple of weeks, it seems like, right? What do companies need to do to prevent fires like this since this isn't the first time?
1: Right. That's a great question. And there are many things companies can do. I think even before we talk about the company's responsibility, we have to talk about a a different kind of standard. We have to talk about the standards to which they are held to do those things. So what it really boils down to is the need for stricter requirements of these kinds of facilities around safety that they will then have to meet rather than have it be less strict standards and hoping they're going to do the right thing before the next event happens. There are rules that govern these facilities. They're set at the level of the EPA and they're enforced by the TCEQ. There is a very specific program called the risk management program that is exactly about the topic we're discussing right now. It's a set of standards that that require industries that are using these kinds of volatile chemicals to meet in order to prevent uh, disasters And, and other really important things like protecting the safety of their workers. Again, you know. When, I, when you asked, was I shocked or was I not shocked? One of the first things I thought about was, what about the people who were working at the plant in that moment and what kind of exposure and risk they were put to? I have family members who work in these plants. I think about them every time something like this happens. We need the strongest risk management program requirements. The good news is that the current administration issued a new rule earlier, well, no, late last year. I was going to say earlier this year. It's already been a few months. And if that rule passes, then there will be stronger safety requirements at each and every one of these facilities. I would would say that part of those safety precautions is recognizing the impact that facilities have on our mental well-being. And that means also good communication, sharing information early and often, being transparent about what chemicals they're using and what their impacts could be, telling people something more than just there's no danger if you know that you don't have the data to back it up. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's 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 health and safety for a community is for facilities like this to to be good neighbors.
0: Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. That was very informative. And I can't wait to see what exactly happens with the reports that come out. And maybe we'll talk down the line about those.
1: I would agree. We are watching and waiting. Thank you so much for for having me here. Like I said, I love Houston. I love talking about it. And I'm deeply passionate to making it the healthiest place to live. So thanks for having me here.
0: That was Jennifer Hadaya from Air Alliance Houston. You can learn more about them with the link in our show notes. Before we go, we all love a good sizzling platter of fajitas, but are they worth it with the prices rising? One Heights area man felt so ripped off from the high prices of fajitas that he went to Twitter and put together a spreadsheet comparing prices from local restaurants. The man who simply goes by at West Geo found that El Tiempo had the most expensive fajitas at $78 a pound. The average for a pound of delicious marinated beef from all restaurants, about $58. That right there is some dedicated Tex-Mex data digging. <laughs> That will do it for today. I'm Rahil Ramzanali, and I hope you learned something new. And I'm a of bit,
1: of, I'm a bit of a hand talker, I so know, I've I been know. trying to keep them down, and then I've noticed. It. So yes, thank you for that reminder. Yeah, I just, will
0: just wanted to mention that.